So if you guys can, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And uh, while we are turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, um, I just kind of want to give you just a little bit about this service today. Um, it's going to be a primer from what we are going to be learning throughout the year. So just to give you case in point, we will be on the weekends, we will be in the book of Galatians. Um, and that is definitely a book that unpacks what it means to step into God's grace. Okay, And then we'll be in the book of Romans on Wednesdays, and that's what it means to step into God's righteousness. So today is going to be titled, Graced Laced Righteousness. So Graced Laced Righteousness is what we're going to be doing, and this is going to serve as a primer to those two different teachings that we're going to be doing on the weekends and Wednesdays. So I don't know if you're like me, I love going out to eat, um, and I love looking at the menu, but nothing gets me more excited by appetizers. If it was up to me, we would just order all the appetizers. Forget the entrees. Just, there's a bunch of finger foods just like covering the table. So today will be an appetizer to what we're going to learn uh, throughout the year. Um, so we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, and we're going to be in verse 20 to 21. And I want you to see how the words relate to us being a people of grace and a people of righteousness. I, I want to point out, as we went through this past year, on Wednesday we went through the book of Exodus. And Exodus proved to us that we were all sinners and that we needed our sin to be atoned for. And then on the weekends, we went through the book of John, and we realized this. As sinners, the atonement of blood of, of uh, sheep and lambs and goats is not going to be enough. We needed an eternal lamb. And that was Jesus Christ, and he paid the price. Amen? And so through that grace, we have salvation. But what about life after salvation? Well, that's what we're going to find out in this scripture. So join me in verse 20. 21. Romans chapter 5, 20 and 21. It says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. That's kind of an interesting line, isn't it? The law was brought so you could show you that your sin, that the, the value or the level of your trespass against God, you could see that it was growing, right? Interesting verse. But look at the next verse. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, it's a kind of a fascinating way of stating this. It's just saying this, as you were stuck in sin, that sin was dragging you down to death. But as you find yourself stuck in God's grace, you find yourself dragged towards what? Towards eternal life. But none of it is something that you can control. Your sin, no matter how hard you try, will never equal eternal life. Even if you say, I'm a good person, or I do good things, or I try to do enough good things to outweigh the bad things, it will never be enough. Because once you've committed the sin, the sin has already been committed, you are now punishable by that crime, and the wages of sin is death. But now if we step through the grace that God has shown us, as we step through that, what do we find? His righteousness that is imparted to us. And what do we have in that? Eternal life. So what this particular scripture is assigning to us is what we are moving away from is our sinful self. And it's not just a vacuum. We're moving towards what? Harmony with God. Harmony with God. Let me ask you this one question. How different would every area of your life be if that area of life was in harmony with God? You could say, you know, I go to church on Sunday. I love ZD 8.3. I put the bumper sticker on my car. 
I put the fish, so everybody knows. I put the Christian fish on the back. Um, you know, I like, to, I like to read the Bible every morning, but what does that matter if you have sin in your heart? Or what if you, what if you are, are, are great in every area, but you don't bring into submission what you watch on TV or how you talk to people? Maybe you feel like you have to act a certain way at work or with friends that you, do, you don't act in the way when you're at church. But let me ask you this. What happens when you bring that place? And it might cost you. There might be a cost involved, but what happens when you bring that area of your life in harmony with God? Essentially, what you're saying is, by the grace of God and by the righteousness of God, this area of my life now in harmony with you is now in control by God. If you gave God your life and it was, he was in control, where do you think he would take you? So I was reading an article, kind of to the point, it's going to seem a little different, but I, I love to read articles on um, psychology. Um, just, that's kind of what I, I started to go to school for, psychology, and so I always kind of touch base in. And one thing I read is an article, a bunch of psychiatrists were uh, observing the show Seinfeld and the phenomenon of Seinfeld. Any Seinfeld fans in the crowd today? Still watching reruns, right? Every time they come on. Uh, so the idea of Seinfeld was kind of blowing them away because it was in the middle of a time where it became must-see TV, it became appointment TV. People would actually say, I'm sorry, I can't spend the day with you or I can't go to dinner with you because Seinfeld's on tonight. And the psychiatrists were going, how did this show in the middle of a landscape, because there was a billion other shows on at the time, why did this show draw people in in the way that it did? And the reason why they found this to be so like an alluring show to people is because people said, I can see myself in the show. And this is what they saw themselves in the show. It was a bunch of random events that turned out to be super tragic, but ultimately funny. Or maybe if you're on the other end of whatever crime or crisis that, you know, George or, you know, Elaine or Kramer was, you know, doing to you, you would say it was, tra it was funny and then tragic. So that's how we say it. So, but people were saying it's random events that would, people would collide to each other and they would laugh at their tragedy. And this is what drew people in because that's how they saw life. They saw life as random events that were super tragic, but in the end, we just have to laugh at it. But the Lord himself would never ascribe that to you. When you read the Bible, there is no such thing as random events that lead you to the Lord. They're purposeful events. Let me give you the case in point. If you find success in Jesus Christ, what will you do? I want more of that. I have found success in the Lord. I have found salvation. I have found forgiveness. I have found mercy. I'm a new creature. I'm a new being. Guess what? This is the place for me. If you're running away from the Lord and you're finding the failure or the death of sin, what are you finding? A dead end. It's kind of interesting, that word, dead end. The end will always end in death. And you know what? I have to do what? Turn around and go back. So even the failures can point you to the Lord, can they not? Every, the, the Bible is chock full of failures. Nothing in your life is random. It either points you to turn back towards the Lord or you're on your way to the Lord. But all ultimately point you to what? There is a truth that the Lord loves you and that's where grace is. I, I kind of see this in this moment. I was reading, um, sorry, not reading. We were putting our, our presents together. And every year we watch, as Jackie and I and the boys go to bed, we wrap their presents. We, we make it a, a point to watch It's a Wonderful Life. It's like a thing we do. I mean, we get like really crazy with it. So I know, it's gonna be wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's worth it, yeah. There's actually a really awesome message in there of grace. And the reason why I want to point this out to you, and we're going to unpack that throughout the service, but there's something amazing about what you see inside of this person's life. It's a wonderful life. Is that the, the idea is that they are in control of their life and they messed up their life, but there's no hope once they've made that mistake. 
that there's nothing else in life. It was just a random event that destroyed my life and there is no hope. But yet the movie is chock full of hope, is it not? The title itself, It's a Wonderful Life. Why is it a wonderful life? Because there is hope. Why is there hope? Because there is grace. And why is there grace? Because the Lord has called you and appointed you to a life of righteousness that he's never stopped giving you. It is us that has to change our perspective to see it. So just to start in the beginning of the movie, I don't know if you remember, there's these stars and angels talking. We're going to kind of talk in the same kind of direction. Uh, We're going to put up this first slide. Who I am. Who I am. Who am I? I'm created for God, right? I am created for God. The sooner that you can admit that to yourself, the sooner that you realize what everything goes in life. Am I created for myself? Am I created for my own pleasure? Absolutely not, but not by scripture standards. You were created for God. For what purpose? To bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. You know that you will never be happier. You'll never have more joy. You'll never have more fulfillment than when you realize what you've been made for and you step into that, into that walk, into that calling. I've been made to bring glory to God. Guess what? I'm bringing glory to God. Amen. That's what I'm made for. Which brings us to the last line where it says here, God has ordained for you to walk in his righteousness and grace, righteousness and grace for his glory. I just wanted to just point out to you that um, this is the time of year that everybody likes to take stock and inventory their life. One of the most amazing things for me to do every year is to go back a year and look at what's, you know, what I was thinking a year ago, what I was planning to do a year ago, and see how dumb I was. I'm a year older, so things should be a little bit wiser, right? Things should be better. I've learned a lot since then. I've learned a lot about myself. Have you ever just looked back at a year and go, what was I thinking? What was I planning? Why did I think that? And then go, if you could go back in time, what would you tell yourself a year? Don't plan that. Don't think that. You don't have any clue, right? And yet this is the time that we should examine why we thought those things and why we might need to weigh those things against the ordainment that God gave us. Let me give you the case in point. If God has called you into a place of grace, how many times this year did you beat yourself up for making the wrong decision? And yet you can ask yourself this, was God beating you up? Not once. Not once not even for the worst sin that you committed. And you have to look no further to the cross to see how far the punishment that you deserve for that sin and did you receive the cross this year? No. Who did? Jesus, every single time. Did you step into grace? Yes. And was God still working on your behalf? Yes. And was he still pulling you forward? Yes, even though you were making crazy plans, making crazy decisions, saying crazy things. Was the Lord still uh, working on your behalf? Yes, And so you just realize this, God did not create us out of boredom. He did not create us out of random. It was a predetermined design. Just think about this. That means he has careful consideration about your whole life. Every fiber of your being has been touched and designed by God. You can see that in this particular place. There is no one else that can be in the calling of God in your life, in the space that you're at at this time. Let me tell you this way. I cannot be you. The calling of the Lord. I can't bring the calling of the Lord into your life. Only you can. Which means the best preacher that you have is you. And God is preaching a message that he wants you to preach to yourself. And what is it? Of grace and righteousness. I was, um, because, you know, we're talking about Ken Ham coming. I I was like, let me get ahead of this thing. Let me get, let me read some Genesis before Ken Ham gets here. And let me see if I can pick out some, like, stumpers. I want to see if I can come some questions and see if I can bring it to him so if I can stump the great Ken Ham. 
And something that kind of popped out to me as I was preparing the sermon and reading Genesis is this. When God made everything in the beginning, everything was made for purpose, right? He, he made the water, right? And that was to what? If we get thirsty, we're going to drink the water. He made the land for what? For us to stand on. But then he made the birds, right? And what were the birds made to do? Bird of flight was made to fly in the sky. And he made the fish. And what were the fish made to do? Go in the water. So everything has a purpose. Let me ask you this question. What was the purpose of man? What's man's purpose? To glorify God, to stand in the presence of the Lord, receive his glory, be in his glory, and glorify him back. You know, I love to think of it this way. You know, when he made the stars and he made the sun, they were light holders, right? But then he made the moon to do what? To reflect the light of the sun back. I know that we might not always think that of ourselves this way, but isn't it an amazing job to reflect the light of God back to him? rather than be the dim darkness that the world that tries to block the light. I am so blessed to reflect the light of Jesus Christ. Man desires to be in the presence of a divine father. That's what you're created for. Just as a fish never gets thirsty because it's swimming in the water, man gets thirsty when he's out of water, right? Out of righteousness. How miserable would be a fish out of water? That's you outside of God's righteousness. You're made to drink it, you're made to swim in it. You're made absolutely to bask in it. And God loves nothing more for you to be submerged in his glory and his, and his righteousness. I, just, uh, I, I like to think of it in this way. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says it to God, or says to God to us this way. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I love that verse. In a weird way, I don't know if you guys do it, but this is what I do. I like to hold... Uh, God to that. I like to pray this verse back to God. I'm like, you know, things are really stinky right now, God. I mean, this is really bad. But you said in your word, where I stink or where I fail or where I'm weak, you're going to come in and you're going to pour your grace and your power is going to be made perfect in my weakness. So let's go. And that's a change in perspective, isn't it? I could easily go, woe is me. I could easily say, oh my goodness, there's not enough money in the bank. I could easily say the tire is flat. Oh my goodness, I'm stuck on the I-95. How dare God? I could immediately um, in my flesh abandon and say this, abandon all hope and go, God has abandoned me. So therefore I'm gonna abandon all hope the moment that crisis hits. But this is the moment the Lord goes, you don't get it. This is the very stage upon which I pour myself out that when you look at that moment and you see where my power infiltrates your life, you're gonna go, I couldn't have done this except by, by the grace of God. And then therefore, I go, you know what? This tastes pretty good. And Psalms, uh, he says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a challenge that the Lord is putting out to you. Take what you think where you fail. Take what you think where the, there's lack in your life. Put it at God's feet and go, do your best. I want to taste and see that you're good. And the Lord, do you, let me ask you this. Do you think the Lord is up to the task? Do you think he's shy? No, he doesn't hold back. It might not turn out the way, or it might, but the timing might not be perfect the way that you would see it. You're like, well, this is how I would see it. But let me just tell you, the end result always produces a great harvest. Let me give you the case in point. If you know anything about It's a Wonderful Life, I'm going to give you the cliff notes. I, was, I, I really want you to go see it so we can talk more about it. But here is the spoiler alert. There's a man named George Bailey. And he grows up, and he's a, he's, a, he's a great caretaker. He likes to take care of everybody around him. 
And as he's growing up, he saves his brother from falling into a lake, right? And then he gets an injury. And so, but what does he do? He doesn't think about himself. What does he think about? His brother falls on a frozen lake, right? So then he gets older and he's on his way. He's on his way out to college. And he said, you know what? He goes to the store and he goes, give me a big suitcase because what's going to happen is I'm going to go to college and I'm going to learn a lot of great things and I'm going to be a great man and make my mark on this world. I'm going to change the world. And then I'm going to have this huge suitcases and I'm going to see the world and I want to be able to put a bunch of stickers on here so everybody could see every place that I've ever been. But everybody who's seen the movie knows that's not the case, is it? He doesn't get that opportunity to go because first his family needs him. So he puts his dreams and he puts all his wishes and his fantasies to the side and says, you know what? My brother needs to go to, uh, to school. Let me take care of him. And my dad needs help back at the shop. So I'm going to take care of that. They have a save business savings and loan where they pour into poor families and give them an opportunity to raise up enough money to get a mortgage to buy themselves a house and move out of the slums. Sounds like a very noble cause, right? And so George goes, you know what? This is good. I'll take care of my brother. I'll send my younger brother to college. And you know what? I'll take care of my dad. And then his younger brother comes back from college and he goes, you know what? Now it's my turn. I'm going to go to college and I'm going to chase all my dreams. And then what happens? His dad passes away. And everybody at the business says, but George, you can't leave. You're going to be the champion for our cause. You're the only one who has a heart and a passion for this. Will you step up? And he says, yes, I guess I'll put my, my dreams and my passions to the side and I'll pursue that. And then what does he do? He takes care of not only his family, he takes care of the whole community. Through what? Through his love and his compassion and his grace for them. And then you guys know the story. A mistake happens and they lose a bunch of money. And they don't have an opportunity to pay. And there's a rich man in town that is overseeing and it's kind of consuming everything, right? He's buying up all the real estate. Does this sound familiar? Buying up all the land, buying up all the houses. What he's doing, he's driving up the rent so that everybody's relying on him. But George is fighting against that, right? He wants to keep it so that people can have an opportunity to build a life of their own, right? So they have say in their own uh, you know, future and destiny. And so he, there's a money goes missing. It's not his fault, but he has to go make up for it. And then what happens? The whole business is threatened to be collapsed, right? And so what does he do? Does he just call on the Lord and start going into prayer week? Does he worship the Lord? No, he abandons his family. He feels like he's the failure. He can't save everything. Why? Because he's taking everything in his own flesh. He's trying to bear the load that isn't his burden to bear. And so he goes out and he leaves his family, abandons hope because he feels like God's abandoned him, starts drinking, and then at the very, uh, you know, crucial moment, he goes, you know what? There's nothing left for me. I'm not, I'm, I'm worth more dead than alive because he has a life insurance policy. And he climbs up on a bridge in the middle of a snowstorm and he's about to commit suicide. And an angel shows up. And the angel tells him, this is not the grace of God that God has pulled you towards. What are you doing, George Bailey? And then he shows him his life, rather the life of everybody around him, if he had not operated through the grace and compassion that the Lord had shown him, what would it be the life for everybody else? So it's kind of like Scrooge, if you guys know a Christmas carol. What would the world be like without George Bailey? Let me give you the case in point. What would the world be like if the grace of God didn't get a hold of George Bailey? That's actually the story of, of the movie. And so George Bailey walks through his life and he sees how there's nobody to defend the little guy. There's nobody to take care of the family. In fact, his mom ends up being abandoned, right? And then she has to fend for herself where he used to take care of her. The whole community is falling apart. The rich guy that was buying up all the land, what is he? Turns the town into what? 
into something else than it was originally, right? It was just a beautiful small town. Now it's a place where there's all kinds of dancing girls and gambling and liquor everywhere and no hope. And you know what he says? Lord, if you, by the grace of God, would just think about me. And then what happens? The whole town rallies around him. Why? Because by the grace and compassion of the God, the Lord found him in his what? In his weakness. And his power was made whole. And in that particular story, you can see this moment. How many men and women of the Bible thought that they were called into a crisis because God abandoned them? They thought that the wrath of God was coming for them. Let me give you the case in point, David. Do you remember David in the Bible? 13 years old, a, a, a prophet shows up in town, right? And everybody is like, oh no, anytime a prophet shows up in the Bible, they're like, oh, I only know this is not going to be good because he's going to speak the truth. And he usually, when he comes and speaks the truth, he usually says something bad, like, you're a sinner, or you're the worst, right? And everybody's like, oh, mine. He goes, I'm here to anoint a king. And they're like, oh, thank God. He's here for a good reason. Oh, he's just going to anoint a king. Nobody's going to get in trouble today. And so they pour oil on David, right? He's 13 years old. But does he become king right away? No, he doesn't become king right away. He has to wait uh, 13 more years, right? So he's not until later in his life that he even becomes close to becoming king. But what happens in the meantime? He's anointed by God. He feels the love of God. He feels the calling of God. But what happens the next 13 years? He's pursued by the current king who tries to kill him. And in pursuing him, does Saul ever get a chance to kill him? No, because why? By the grace of God, he's always protected. And he goes hungry, and by the grace of God, he gets food. And every time there's an enemy, an assassin that comes and tries to kill him. Do you guys know what the Bible says about that enemy or that assassin? They end up worshiping God alongside David because they're so consumed by the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit on David. They go, I want to be a part of that. So the assassins become what? Co-worshippers with him. Is that not an amazing moment in David's life for him to realize what? When I walk into my kingship finally through these trials and through these testings, I cannot do this except by the grace of God. So the same way that God sustained me in the desert and the same way that God sustained me in the cave is the same way he's going to sustain me as a king. It's the same for Daniel too, right? 14 years old and he's dragged off into captivity. Uh, did he deserve that? Did he cause that? No, he's just a 14-year-old kid growing up in a Jewish society and next thing he knows, he's got Persian captors dragging him away. And what's the only thing that he brings with him to, uh, to the new land? The word of the Lord. The only thing he has in his head is the memory of all the verses that he learned. And what does he teach to everybody around him? It's by the grace of God that I'm here. And did the grace of God sustain him through the prison, through the king's court? Let me ask you this. Did the grace of God provide for him in the, in the lion's den? All the way. The only thing that Daniel ever had was the grace and compassion of God, even in the worst of times. And that's what I'm going to say is, just as a fish swims in a, in a stream, so did Daniel swim in that same stream. So did David swim in that same stream. You and I are swimming in that same stream, aren't we? The, the stream of God's grace. But then you ask yourself this, but what if my mess is too big for the Lord? Because you could say that, right? We're like, well, Daniel was so holy. He was this 14-year-old Jesus freak. He was on fire for the Lord. Everything was great around him. But what about me? I blew it. I've made mistakes. You don't understand. I know that you say that my sin is great, but God's love is greater. But what if I don't like what I see? I, I don't know if you know anything about a man named John Newton. Does anybody know John Newton? He's the man who wrote and penned the song that we just sang, Amazing Grace. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. It's a great movie. Go check it out. But John Newton was a slave trader. 
And he looked into the eyes of the slaves that he bought and sold. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine uh, looking into the eyes of people and having this crisis of a moment? I am buying and selling the very image of God. You know, we were made in the image of God. And who, who am I to lord over my, uh, my uh, authority over God's creation to say, this is what your value is. I assign this value. Now go be an indentured slave or, you know, just whatever you, I decide for you to do. I'm in control of that. And he looked at that and he had a crisis and he said, I'm not this person. I'm disgusting. I'm gross. And he goes, I'm irredeemable. And then, you know, if you know anything about his story, he tried to throw himself into a life of ministry so that he could scrub away his sin. And if you guys know anything about that, he became like almost like a janitor in the church. He would scrub the synagogue. He was, or it's not synagogue, I'm sorry. He would scrub the temple that he was at. He would scrub the front, the cathedral, sorry. He would scrub the front. He would scrub the inside. He goes, as I'm scrubbing the church, I'm scrubbing away his sin. But can you ever scrub away your own sin? No. And it isn't then he realized that he needed the grace of God. And then he penned the most amazing words, an amazing grace, Right? For a wretch that, what a sweet sound, right? For a wretch like me. You know, one of the most beautiful things about being here when the band is singing, I love when the band drops out, when they stop singing and I just hear the crowd. And I like to stop singing because I like to tune my ear to everybody as I sit up front here, everybody behind me. You know what I love hearing? I love hearing people that not only know the lyrics, but I love hearing people that are the lyrics. I can hear it in your voice. There's a different way that you sing when you know the song, not just from by word, but by spirit. I am amazing grace. This is what John is saying. John Noon is saying in the, in the song, Amazing Grace. He's saying, I can never give grace until I become grace. I can never be, give forgiveness until I become forgiveness. I can never be the love of God until I receive the love of God and become the love of God, right? You know, I have to at first receive it. How can we ever change the world like George Bailey unless we become the forgiveness, love, and grace of Jesus Christ? But that means for us to receive this moment. It's not what I do, it's what he does and what he does on the cross. I love this statement. This is what John Newton would say at the end of his life. My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, and it's the two most important things, that I am a great sinner. Do you think he was a great sinner? Looking at all those people, all those families he ripped apart? But I remember this also, that Christ is a great Savior. Amen. Talk about someone stepping into amazing grace, right? As we look forward to the next year, I just want to invite you into this moment, not to look in what your successes and failures are, but look at the stream that you're swimming in the streams of grace that flow effortlessly from a God who's never given up on you forever. So <clears throat> I want to just point out too, when we look through the book of Genesis and we move all the way to the back to Revelation, has God ever changed? Has the story ever changed? That's what I love about the Bible. Whenever you read about the Bible, you read about there, here's this guy and he was the worst. And then God came into his life and there was redemption, the end. Every book, right? Every book, it's like this, right? Aren't you glad that there isn't a book of you in the Bible? Warts and all, explained to the whole world. And this is the book of Joey. And these are all the mistakes he has. Everybody read it and don't be like Joey. But in the end, it turned out awesome. Why? Because God was always the same, pouring out grace, inviting you into a righteous lifestyle to be like him. But how can we reach that place? Only by walking in him. 
I, this kind of reminds me of a story uh, personal to me. I don't know if you guys know, I say this sometimes. I grew up with my grandparents owning a bunch of land in Parkland, Florida. And they had a bunch of acreage where they had cows and sheep and dogs and horses. And when you're like eight, nine, ten years old, you're like, this is the best. Of course, there was no cell phones or, you know, stuff like that at that time. So all I had was cows and sheep and horses, and it was awesome. And so every time my parents would be like, you know what, you know, you want to go see grandma and grandpa? I was like, yes, of course, I want to go over there and wrestle some sheep and, and play with the chickens and stuff like that. But also, too, for this, because my grandma had a heart for baking. You see, my, my parents were very healthy parents. They let me have apples. That was dessert. But grandma wasn't about that life, wasn't she? Grandma operates under different rules, doesn't she? What happens at grandma's house stays at grandma's house. And that includes baked goods. So I was like, I get to play with cows and sheep, and I get to eat cake. So yes, send me to grandma's for as long as you want. Mom, take the summer off. I don't care. So she would send me over there. And I remember at the beginning of one particular summer, my grandfather bought a bunch of bales of hay. I'm talking like those big circles that they bring on a semi-truck. And they lined it up across the fence. And when I say across the fence, think of acreage, like 10 acres long, right? And there's all this hay. And I remember my grandfather coming up to me because he knew how much I love the animals. And putting his finger in my face, he's like, I love you, but I'm going to work. Do not give this hay to those, to those animals because I know what you'll do. This is supposed to last the whole summer. I was like, of course, Grandpa. And then he left. And then a minute went by. And then two minutes went by. And I was looking at that hay. And I'm like, and the sheep were looking at the hay. And the cows were looking at the hay. And they're looking at me. And I'm looking at them. And I go, yeah, you're right. We should probably do this. So Grandpa's gone. So I grab hand over fist hay. And I start feeding it. And guess who's the best friend of the animals? This guy. I was like an animal whisperer. I got all the animals eating out of my hand. And just so you guys know what this is like, this is how the level I got with them. When I was growing up, the cows thought of me as one of their own because I was a little tyke and I just grew up with them. And so I used to always feed them. And then I was to the point that I would grab the bull's horns and shake them. I know I'm bragging a little bit. It's my sermon. It's great. I'm bragging. I grabbed the, I grabbed the bull's horn and I shake it a little bit and the horn didn't care. And then I remember my uncle walked over and grabbed the bull's horn. I can do that too. And the bull kicked him in the face. And I just remember going, as sad as this is, as sad as this moment is, I go, I think I've achieved a new level. I think I'm the beast master. And I'm trying to explain this to my uncle on the way to the emergency room with his jaw broken. I'm like, I don't think you have the beast master gene. It's me. It's not you. And he's like, can you please stop talking? And so this is where I think I am. I think I'm in this place where me and the animals understand each other and I'm feeding them hand over fist, hand over fist. And then I get this bread idea. You know what? I can smell something coming out of grandma's kitchen. I think she's baking something. You know what would be cool? If I could bring all of these animals inside. I don't understand. Looking back, remember I said you look back and you realize some of the dumb decisions you've ever made? So I made a trail of hay for cows, sheep, and horses all the way into my grandmother's living room. And I remember this. My grandmother was an older lady, and she did not move much, but I remember the sound of her feet coming down the stairs into her living room. Uh, it was like thunder coming down. And I remember even the animals looked up at the stairwell where she came down. And I remember this, my grandmother, because I'm one of many Josephs in the family, so I got stuck with the name Joey. So she, I remember, I'll never forget, when she got to the bottom of the stairs with thundering footsteps, she said, Joseph Thomas Everington, what have you done? I just remember those teeth gritting, and I'm like, Grandma never says that. I think I messed up, guys. And I looked at the sheep, and I'm like, you got to get out of here. And the sheep are looking at me like, no, it's comfortable in here. There's AC and everything. I think we're going to stay. And so my grandmother goes, do what you can, get them out. And so my grandmother, with, my, you know, with, with her help and me, we eventually got them all back in the pen, but it took all day. And I just remember sitting on the steps, because she goes, when we get home, we have to talk to your grandpa. 
And I remember this. It wasn't so much what I did. It was more about letting my grandfather down. Like I made the mistake. I made the mess. So I sat on the front porch steps and I cried and I cried. And it wasn't like one of those like cute Hollywood cries where I was like, (laughs) I mean, it was gross. It was disgusting. And I was bawling and I couldn't be consoled. And I just remember my grandmother coming and sitting down and sitting next to me and putting her arm over my shoulder and pulling me into her, right? And I remember she's going to be, it's going to be okay, but we have to deal with this, but it's going to be all right. And I'll never forget what happened next. See, my grandmother grew up in uh, the Depression era, and she used to make this thing with white bread. She would take white bread with cream cheese with a little bit of uh, cinnamon and sugar, and she would toast it, and it would call bow ties. And it was my favorite snack ever because we didn't remember, I said, we didn't get sugar at home. I remember her putting that plate of bow ties on my lap. And I remember the smell hitting my face, and I was like, what is going on? If I could have guessed, my grandmother in the moment she saw me bringing those animals in the house, would have taken those things and just thrown them away and said, this ungrateful little brat, she knows, he knows what grandpa told him not to feed the sheep. Did he do that? Did he tell him not to waste it? I wasted all of the summer's bales of hay. But did I listen? No, I rebelled. Did I honor my grandfather? No, I did the opposite. And yet my grandmother baked those still the same because they still took time, right? And I asked her, why did you finish? And she goes, oh, oh, I didn't bake these, you know, because you're so awesome. I baked them because I love you. And I remember that smell hitting my face and I remember her saying that line, I baked them because I love you, not because of what you did. So you don't get them or you don't get them based on who you are. You get them based on who I am. I give you love because I'm a loving person. You receive love because I'm a loving person that loves you forever. You have grace because I'm a grace-giving person. And I think about this all the time. How many times does the Lord sit and hold us in the middle of our mistakes and we're saying, no, no, God, I'm not good enough. I made a mess of it. And he goes, it's not about you. It's about me. You, you don't receive or get good things of grace because of your performance. You get good things in grace-filled righteousness because of who I am and because I love you, and I'll never stop loving you. If it was based on us, how long ago would we have been gotten rid of? How long ago would God have gotten rid of you? And yet the Lord's love keeps going. Look at this uh, sentence on the screen. This is, comes from A.W. Tozer. I love it. Grace is the good pleasure of God. Isn't that a great sentence? We could stop right there. Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. Its use to us sinful men is to save us and make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what we just did in church service today? We sang to a Jesus Christ as undeserving people, full of the rich, luxurious nature of God's heart. Is it not? How many people here have had sins forgiven that you never even want to talk about again? I always think about this. If we were to ever print out everything that I've ever done, good or bad, how long would I get through all the sins? Maybe I always like to say this. I'd probably be a stack of papers, you know, as big as the stage. But if I got to page two, I would actually look up at Jesus and be like, if I were you, I would give up on me. Page two. And yet the Lord says, it is for my good pleasure that I pour out grace. It's my pleasure to do this for you because that's who I am. You know, every success points to God, but every failure points to God because of this. How many times have you found a soft landing spot in Jesus Christ because of his grace? And because you receive that grace and you taste and see how good that is, you now become that grace. You know what it is? I am who I am because the Lord says that. 
He assigns the value. In fact, uh, one of the verses that I love to read is 1 Corinthians 15.10. It says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Sounds like Popeye, doesn't it? By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. How many people here saying amazing grace because the effect of God's love in your life? Not your performance, not what you did, but but the gentle, loving pull forward of a God that has never given up on you. Isn't that amazing? I've given up on me way more times than God has given up on me, which is zero. That's why I always like to make fun of this joke. Um, You know, everybody, my wife and I, we sit down and we make goals for the year. We pull out our calendar, our 2023 calendar, which is crazy, right? To see that date. It's like we should be in flying cars and spacesuits right now. But um, no, we have apps that get us food at Dunkin' Donuts. That's as far as we've made it. But it always is a new year and a new you. And it always brings me back to this revelation. I don't know if you guys know about this revelation. Have you heard of this? It's called regifting. Has anyone heard of this phenomenon called regifting? I'm going to give you one last little story to kind of put you in the case and point of stepping into God's grace or not stepping into God's grace. I remember this one time um, I was trying to put gifts together for friends and family, and I got through, and I'm looking at my stacks of gifts. I'm like, oh, there's mom, there's dad, there's my brother, you know, blah, blah. And I have a best friend, and I was looking at it, and I go, I didn't get anything for him. Why did I forget about him? I got it for everybody else. I'm like, he's going to get me something awesome. I'm going to have nothing. And so I start panicking and I open up this drawer and there's this uh, Starbucks gift card. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. I didn't even think to check it or do anything. I just slammed it into an envelope and I gave it to him. And I remember him opening it because he loves Starbucks. And he goes, oh, thank you. And I was like, that's kind of weird. He's like, he loves Starbucks. What, What the hey? Should he not like love this moment. And he's like, yeah, thank you. I'm going to go get some, some coffee. That's great. I didn't think anything about it till 10 months later when my birthday came up and I open up the gift and I get inside of there a Starbucks gift card. And I look at it and I go, there was a scratch that went right across the top. And I go, had this same, I go, this guy regifted me. This guy regifted the gift that I regifted to him. How dare he? What kind of a friend does he think I am? And like, he doesn't know that I regifted it, but I know that he regifted it. He's got to know that I put that scratch on the top or the scratches on the top there. And I go, huh, really? Thank you. I'm like, that's what you think of our friendship, huh? And so I grab that and I go, let's go to Starbucks. And I go up there. Now, mind you, it was a $20 gift card. That's what it said on there. And I slide up there and it said something like $5. It was like $4.95. And I'm standing at the, at the cash register and I look back at him and I go, $4.95? What in the world? I go, this is getting worse by the minute. So I go, what can I get for $4.95? Basically water at Starbucks, right? You know, like water with maybe some whipped cream on top. I'm like, I don't know. I go, I'll just take whatever I can get for $4.95. And the lady gives it to me. And we come back and we sit down and I go, thank you for my coffee. And he's like, hey, by the way, as we're sitting there drinking, he goes, by the way, did you notice that scratch across the top? And I was like, yes. And he goes, did you not remember when I gave that to you for your birthday three years ago? I was like, hold on. I'm upset at you because you regifted a gift that I regifted to you, which you originally gave to me. This gets even worse. I'm the problem. I'm the big problem here. And he goes, yes, you're the big problem. And I go, I'm totally sorry. You can get anything you want at Starbucks today. I'll pay for it straight up. But I just think about this word, this regifting. How many times do we get to a new situation or a new year and we try to regift our old self to our new year? How many times do we go through a new year and go, new year, new Joey, new everything, I'm going to do it the old way? 
And yet the stream of the Lord is being poured out on us and the Lord is saying, no, 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 don't do a new year. Do a new perspective on who I am. You see, nobody in the Bible was able to become who they were meant to be until they had that correct perspective of Jesus Christ. Think about Joseph. Think about Joseph. I don't belong here in this prison. His brothers grabbed him and sold him for jealousy, sent him down to Egypt, and he's sitting in a prison and he goes, but by the grace of God, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to swim in streams of graciousness. And then he gets thrown into, to, you know, from Potiphar's house to prison. And then what happens from there? He becomes second in command of all of Egypt. And I always think about this moment as he is in second command of all of Egypt. He's made there because he's able to interpret a dream. And by the grace of God, he's given the power of the Holy Spirit to interpret the dream. He's able to not only save his position, but he's able to save Egypt. And by saving Egypt, he's able to save enough grain to save who? His family. And by being able to save enough grain to save his family who's starving in Israel, who comes down to be with him, right? And now he has the resources to take care of them. On the other side of that, what is he able to do? He's able to start the nation of Israel. And because he's able to start the nation of Israel, what happens? We're able to fulfill the promise of who? Jesus Christ. And he's not able to become grace until he can see God for who he is, a grace-filled God. And he stands in these situations, in these crises, and he says, you know what? By the grace of God, I am here. And I am what I am because of you, Lord. And whatever you want to do through me, do it through me. And then guess what? He blesses us not only to the point of giving us the Old Testament and the way that we get it, we get Jesus Christ because of his obedience to his righteousness, right? And that is who we are. Is how many people in this room right now, the world would change, not only your life, but your family and everybody around you, just like George Bailey, the whole community benefits from what? The grace of God not stopping at you, but flowing through you. Why? Because the grace of God is so luxurious, he has enough that he pours into your cup, it flows over. And now the message to the world is this, God is so good, it's spilling out everywhere, in every direction. And inside of that, we can see that the old me is dead. And why? Because it's a new me who's ready to consume the goodness of God constantly. John Newton had this put on his tomb. I'm going to read this as a closer so we can put this at the end of 2022. We can move into 2023 into a new world. He had this on the, on the tombstone. John Newton, once an infidel. Anybody have God come and capture your heart with love when you were a non-believer? An infidel and a libertine. Does anybody know this word? I watch a lot of period pieces and they always say this. It's always like one guy puts a sword or another guy's finger in his face and he's like, you libertine. And I'm like, this sounds kind of cool. It's actually not. I had to look it up. It's a person who lives a lascivious lifestyle. It's a person who's stuck in debauchery. So he was an unbeliever he was stuck in debauchery and he sold slaves, a servant of slaves in Africa and was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed. And what happened on the other side of that? He, his whole life was able to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. Sounds like Paul's story, doesn't it? I tried to kill Christians. Now I'm writing two-thirds of the New Testament because I love God so much. And how did God capture Paul's heart? With grace. And then what happened on the other side of grace? He moved him right into his righteousness because Paul became obsessed with God's goodness and his righteousness because of his grace. I want to just kind of put this in our heart as we move forward. Um, I'm going to read this verse to you one more time. 1 Corinthians 15 or 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
and his grace to me was not without effect. Whatever happened in 2022, whatever happened before now, we put it at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and for grace, we swim forward in the streams of grace and become whatever he's meant for us to become. Think of your life, if you think about this, it's in full harmony with God and the blessings of God are flowing from you. How would the world change? How would your life change? How would everybody's story from this church change? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just, I just thank you as you've called us to rely on you. You have a plan for those who listen and follow. We're not perfect people, but you're a perfect God and you never make a mistake. So, so you've called us, then you've not made a mistake. You've specifically called everybody here by name, by heart, by soul. And you've said to them, I want to pour out my grace until it wipes out everything you've ever done. And the only thing that not only you can see and that the world can see is me. Let us be a church that's filled with Jesus Christ. Let us be a church that whose 2023 is marked by the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And that as we walk forward in righteousness and humbly serve you, that we become the blessing of God. We don't just receive the blessing of God, that everybody comes near us, they go, I want to be near this person because they're filled with the Holy Spirit, that they're filled with the grace of God, that I can glimpse the divine father inside of them and see, oh my goodness, this is not a God that I thought of. This is a God that actually is. It's a God of love. Forgive us of our sins, forgive us of our fear and doubt, and let us just be like fish that swim effortlessly in your streams of grace forever. Never thirsty again. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. 